Welcome to 5 Minutes to Chaos, the podcast that dives deep into the world of chaotic emergencies and complex crisis management. In each episode, we'll engage with emergency managers and crisis leaders to explore the challenges that arise in times of crisis and the strategies they employ to navigate through them. From natural disasters to technical failures to human-caused events, we'll examine real-life scenarios that put crisis managers to the test. Join us as we uncover the lessons learned from past emergencies and gain insight into the complexities of crisis management. With five minutes to chaos, you'll be better prepared to face the unexpected when it strikes. Let's dive in. Hello, everybody. Steve Kerr here, your host to Five Minutes to Chaos, an unrehearsed, unscripted podcast with the goal of promoting crisis management through the raw experiences and observations of emergency managers and incident commanders that have led their teams through catastrophic or complex situations. We have a special guest with us today, somebody I know for uh, the better part of three decades or more, and we, I have been working with uh, on and off for the better part of three decades or more, uh, Adam Montella. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's good to it's good to be with you. Uh, it's good to continue to work with you. We have shared history that's uh, very important to me personally, and as well as the clients and the the the, the jurisdictions that we've served. Uh, so let's go into your career, and then we'll talk about some crisis stuff. Uh, you've had a storied career. You've had some interesting positions. Yeah, yeah. I actually got into emergency management kind of by accident, and it seems to be the case with a lot of people. I'm hearing a lot of that on the show, yeah. I was actually a music major in college and uh, volunteering at the Red Cross, teaching first aid and CPR classes um, about uh, about my sophomore year in college they, they start paying instructors like $50 stipend to go teach uh, workplace CPR and first aid and I you know 50 bucks back then was uh you know groceries for the week for right. my wife and I so I I started marketing my own classes because I wasn't getting enough uh, given to me and uh got called into the executive director's office one day and it, actually that's how I met Jeff Goldberg too one of your other guests uh Jeff was one of my volunteers and we were marketing classes and increased the revenue of the chapter by something like 500% in three months. So I thought I was going to get canned as a volunteer because I was going out on my own, but he offered me the job as a health and safety director. And I said, I'll take it as long as you give me disaster services too, because that was my, my kind of my hobby, my passion. Uh, so that's uh, what started my career I, from there. I uh, ended up around the country in different Red Cross chapters uh, on well over 100 uh, headline or, or presidentially declared emergencies as uh, a mass care officer or logistics officer and ended up in Daytona Beach, uh, Florida, and as the state disaster director for the Red Cross at the time. Uh, about the same time Andrew had. Uh, the city of Daytona Beach Shore. Okay, so Hurricane Andrew, 1992. 1992. Right, okay. Uh, so about that time, uh, the city of Daytona Beach Shores, uh, which was the coastal part of Daytona Beach, uh, had a community forum, and the citizens were so uh, 
enlightened about the effects of Hurricane Andrew, they they decided to put emergency management as their number one priority as a city. Uh, so the chairman of the board at the Red Cross was also the mayor of the city and offered me the job as the emergency management director, uh, first uh, EM director in the state of Florida at the municipal level, uh, which was kind of cool at a young age. Uh, from there, I became kind of the assistant to the city manager and uh, uh, the city manager was also kind of a EM wannabe. He drank the Kool-Aid a long time ago and uh, supported my whims. So one of those was working with the state, working with FEMA to continue doing national disaster response. Uh, once it gets in your blood, as you know, Steve, it's hard to kind of shake that off. Uh, so with, with that relationship, uh, I had become really friendly with the associate uh, FEMA director, uh, Grant Peterson, uh, who was retiring? I and, remember Grant. I, yeah. <laughs> I remember Grant from one of the one of the large consulting houses, RPI, I think. RPI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, he was a, a gentleman to work with. He was, and he still is. Um, so Grant uh, retired from FEMA, went to this company, and uh, called me he, one day. In that, he was pretty office. high level, right? He was Senate confirmed, if memory he serves. Was. Yeah, he was. Um, and uh, Grant offered me a position doing this Nun Luger Domenici Domestic Preparedness Program. And I said, what the hell is that? And it was, it turns out it was the 120 city program to train, equip, and uh, exercise the largest 120 uh, jurisdictions in the country in uh, chemical and biological uh, response. Uh, so it, it was really the birth of what we see as HCEP now, the Homeland Security Exercise uh, Evaluation Program, started with that uh, non-Luger program. Well, I, you know, I could remember, and I want to talk about non-Luger for a minute, but I remember some of the, I'll say, godfathers of non-Luger era exercises using the methodology that would appear later on as HCP. And I'm thinking of personalities like Corey Gruber and Jock Bond, and you're certainly yourself. Jeff, Jeff Goldberg was, was part of it. And Jeff and I spoke about that in episode two, I believe. Um, what I wanted to say about the non-Luger program is, uh, well, first of all, as, as non-Luger goes, at the time I was in uh, New York City Office of Emergency Management, right. and we were one of the top threat cities, and we were one of the this first where we first met. That's where we first started working together, and we were one of the top cities, and we started working uh, with the federal government on those uh, programs you just spoke about, chemical, biological terrorism, preparedness, planning, uh, training, and exercises. But we were so early in the program that this predated the Department of Homeland Security. Right. This predated the Department of Justice, Bureau of Justice Assistance, taking the program over. FEMA was not in the game really at all, and there's some, you know, there's some, some, you know, some discussion over why that was. Uh, but this was DOD, and if right. serves, it started under CBDCOM, Chemical Defense, right. Biological mm -hmm. Command, then it. That was renamed to Soldier Biological Command, uh, right, Chemical SBC, Command, SBCCOM. SBCCOM, right? So we right. worked with you. I was part of a program called, which was under NLD funding, uh, Biological Warfare Improved Response Program. Right. And I was, uh, 
I was granted a, a secret security clearance, and I was one of the New York City representatives, along with uh, FDNY and the fire, uh, rather FDNY, uh, uh, NYPD, and uh, Department of Health. And then there were emergency managers and representation of public safety from around the country. We met at Aberdeen every uh, every six weeks, actually, for for a few for probably a couple of years, two to three years. So that my point is. As federal programs go, I believe this was a fairly successful program because a lot of the response tactics, techniques, strategies that we all collectively developed, all of us, the the, the subject matter experts such as yourselves coming in to uh, work with the, the local emergency management crews such as myself and those around the country, a lot of those capabilities response tactics and strategies we used on 9-11 and then fast forward right right and then fast forward to the pandemic and, and then I'll, I'll i'll stop consuming all the air and give it back to you and then fast forward to 9-11 and a lot of the biological terrorism strategic and tactical um capabilities that we developed Again, the collective we under the program, a lot of it in New York City, I, I, I want I want to say that, was exported around the country. And things like pods, pods. points of distribution exactly. and vaccine clinics came right out of the New York City bioterrorism plan that was penned by under the direction of our, our, our boss, certainly at the time, was Jerry Hauer. It was penned by the likes of uh, uh, Sam Benson and Mike Berkowitz and Rebecca Rabin. You know the personalities with the support of uh, subject matter experts such as yourself. Certainly. I just feel strongly about that program because a lot of uh, it's important for the younger people that are going to listen to this to know some of the rich history that uh, we have all lived through. Go ahead. Well, to build on that, Steve, the most of the federal programs that are successful come from the locals, local communities, local jurisdictions that pilot these programs or 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 uh, were their programs to begin with and caught the attention of somebody at the federal government. Uh, for example, if you recall, when you worked with me at the Port Authority, we had to create a different type of HIRA or a threatened vulnerability assessment to look at risk also. That's the birth, what you and I came up with at the Port Authority for assessing special jurisdictions became the Thyra that we have today. Uh, the non-logger program, as you said, birthed the uh, HSEAP program, the Homeland Security Exercise Evaluation Program. Uh, there's a lot of uh, tentacles that uh, go back to those early days when we were preparing for uh, chemical and biological warfare. Yeah, you know, I think I think we need to talk about the port for a minute, because let it let let it be known that you were the head of emergency management for the largest transportation agency, possibly in the U.S., but certainly the largest uh, container port operator on the East Coast. That would be two seaports in Newark, uh, one in Newark, one in Elizabeth, New right. Jersey, and. Um, uh, this agency, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, is responsible for uh, the uh, interstate bridges and tunnels. So not the ones that are in New York City. So the George Washington Bridge, right. the uh, three bridges on Staten Island, and the, and the um, you have the Holland and the Lincoln Tunnel, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Teterboro, right? One of the possibly Stewart now, and then you have uh, commercial properties, and the most iconic of those properties were 
one and two World Trade Center, as well as Correct. some properties out on out on uh, Sun. Also, a railroad, the path rail system, a right, ferry running, system, ferries, right? Very, very big uh, operation. So, when you talk about threat and risk, there were folks that were uh, in there before you and I. And I, I, right. so, so it had flipped at one point. I then left New York City OEM and I became a contractor and you were the client and I was right. working with you as a subject matter expert. And we were working with um, senior leadership at the Port Authority, such as Chief Operating Officer Ernesto, Ernesto Butcher, mm -hmm. Director of Operations and Emergency Management, John Patchkowski. And, and we, we had teams doing this, but understanding the threat and risk um, surrounding that critical, I mean, when you think of critical infrastructure, airports, seaports, uh, the George Washington Bridge is not just a bridge that crosses the Hudson River, Adam, sure. right? It is part of the Interstate 95 system. It connects, uh, well, the, it, bring, it, it brings commerce to New England. It brings commerce, it brings goods and services. You know, in the Northeast area, which we saw during uh, Superstorm Sandy, uh, the just-in-time delivery of goods, toilet paper, co you know, commodity items, gasoline, uh, eggs, milk, bread and butter stops came to a screeching halt because of the uh, disconnect at the time uh, from damage to the storm by caused by the storm uh, certainly during 9-11 when uh, air traffic and pretty much all commercial traffic was uh, came to a halt the the people in the northeast especially around new york city are reliant on just-in-time delivery. There's no big warehouses of uh, these commodities anymore. They come into the port, they get offloaded, they get to distribution centers and on trucks to uh, to get delivered to grocers and retailers. Uh, once you stop that, uh, it's three days and you're without supplies. So that experience um, that you gained as the general manager at the Port Authority was very prescient. Because when I was in emergency management in New York City, the only supply chain I really worried about was um, the chemical, uh, rather the uh, the uh, the national stockpile, right? Right, the the strategic national stockpile. We didn't really think about things like uh, gasoline and, well, certainly toilet paper and food goods. So you learned the you learned the lesson of supply chain. Uh, vulnerability, fragility, and just-in-time uh, um, weaknesses very early, way before oh, yeah. the pandemic. I mean, if, you, if you look at that and then fast, fast forward to Katrina. Uh, Katrina, the automotive industry, uh, especially the big three, Chrysler, GM, and, and Ford, uh, had a single vulnerability because they used the same third-party manufacturer to produce the vents for the air conditioning systems and the automobiles and that manufacturer was devastated from the storm it was nine months before they could resume production of automobiles because of an air conditioning vent uh, so it, it shows you how fragile and how uh kind of symbiotic the the ecosystem is in in, in supply chain so we're talking about now, uh, also very important for the listeners, we are talking about the nexus, the intersection of emergency management and business continuity. 
and let let it be uh, known that um, it is, if not exactly the same thing, then the the way both communities perform are very similar and need to be integrated. So when you work for an organization such as the Port Authority, you have responsibility for emergency management and business continuity. And what you were able to do there with, with the rest of the team, of course, was integrate that. And I experienced that in Colorado working for mm -hmm. a, an energy and water utility. Uh, we were both in emergency management and, and business continuity and, well, also physical security at one point department. Um the uh, the nexus is there, and and uh, just had a uh, a recording yesterday, a podcast episode that'll appear in a few weeks. It was a roundtable discussion with five senior emergency managers, crisis managers, business continuity leaders, and we came to the conclusion that we all do the same thing, whatever the title is. We do. Uh, what brings that kind of really to point is let's shift gears for a second and talk about the uh the anthrax attack uh at the u.s capitol um prior to that incident uh if you recall back in the i think it was the late 80s early 90s there was a, a shooting at the at capitol and two capitol police officers were killed and we were brought in uh, as a consultant to help them develop a plan because they didn't have any written continuity plans, no written emergency operations plans. They had SOPs, obviously, and SOGs from the Capitol Police and, and the other response agencies that support the Capitol. But in uh, over 200 years, they you know, were faced with everything from the British were coming to uh, World War One, World War Two, and had no written continuity or emergency plans. So they they brought us in and they, they held their hands up like this and said, we need a plan that's about this thick. <laughs> and if you, you can't see it on the radio, but uh, it's uh, about eight inches thick, 10 inches thick. And they said, we need to hold something up to the public to show them that we have a plan. I said, well, you know, I said guys, that's not gonna work if you have a plan that heavy. He said, no, we need a plan that heavy. So a uh, very good friend of mine at the time that worked with us at, uh, at RPI, uh, Chaz Waltz and I, wrote the, I know Chas. Yep, good yeah, man. wrote the uh cbemp <laughs> so it's a continuity of business and emergency management plan it was a kind of combination of coop and eop and we wrote it in such a way that uh it was almost a series of playbooks tear sheets job action sheets uh very checklist based and that's i, I use that to this day when writing emergency plans uh, get away from you know, the, the, the Gideon Bible uh, plan that you have to read through 50 pages till you find out what am I supposed to do. Um, so fast forward from there, um, I'm in Florida uh, working for Governor Bush uh, after the anthrax letters were delivered to the Star and Globe and a couple other newspapers in Florida. Uh, suspicious white powder calls were popping up all over the place. And so we needed a protocol for handling the evidence and bringing it to the lab. So we came down here to work on that. Um, so let's set the stage just for a second, yes. Adam. We're talking about, it's really the same time frame, right? There was yes. anthrax attacks. So what happened in New York, uh, what happened in D.C., and then right. what happened in Florida? Because there are folks that probably don't know the full 
uh, I don't have a full picture of that. If uh, go ahead. Yeah. So yeah, it's a couple months after 9-11, uh, we were still dealing with well, about six or seven months after 9-11. We're still dealing with the recovery of the Trade Center, the the, the national uh, uh, economic recovery, and uh, certainly the psychological recovery. And then we get hit with these anthrax letters. Uh, Star and Globe got hit first. Senator Daschle's office in Washington, D.C. got hit. And uh, there were some uh, in New York City, Tom Brokaw, I think uh, some of the big news agencies received letters as well. Uh, when they tested, I, th I think 30 Rock, right? NBC, 30 Rock, took, 30 yeah. Rock took some centers. Right. And I know uh, one of the uh, responding NYPD emergency service officers uh, who uh, contracted uh, cutaneous uh, right. anthrax from that response. And, when we, and he's fine. He's fine, of course. Right. When we tested it, it was uh, military grade. So it had to come from one of our labs, either CDC or SAMRED, somewhere in, in the uh, government collective. It was too high grade. Um, that aside, uh, we're in Florida doing that response. I get a phone call heading back, to, uh, believe it or not, to my grandmother's house in Sarasota from Tallahassee for the weekend. I need laundry done. I've been there on the road for two weeks. I wanted a good home-cooked meal. And Chaz, uh, the guy that wrote the plan with me for the, uh, the House of Representatives was with me. And uh, I get a call from Bill Livingood, the Sergeant at Arms. And I said, Bill, so what? He said, I said, first of all, how did you get this phone number? This is my personal cell. He said, don't worry about it. <laughs> so he said, uh, he said, where are you? I said, I'm in Florida. He said, I know you're in Florida. He said, you're closer to Jacksonville or, or Tampa? He said, uh, probably Jacksonville. I'm right here at uh, you know, the crossroads. He said, get there. There's a plane that will be waiting for you. We need you to back at the Capitol. Something's happened. I can't tell you what over the phone. Uh, so in my cutoff shorts, uh, you know, three days of five o'clock shadow. Uh, Chaz and I tranch off to uh, the airport. We changed clothes in the parking lot at the rental car agency, and they held a 727 on the ground for us, a commercial airline, and two first class seats. And we board the plane looking like, uh, you know, to catch Ruggison. Uh, still not knowing what's going on. We land in, in D.C. Uh, I mean, this oh. is all very Tom Clancy. I mean, it's oh, very, it's, it's very. got to be it's got to be both um, uh, frightening and exciting at the same time. It was, but what kept running through my mind, Steve, was shit. I hope my plan worked, <laughs> whatever it was, because I wrote the plan for the house, and it was obviously some major crises. And, and all I kept thinking is, I hope this big plan that we chopped up uh, did the job. I hope I'm I'm not being called back in to get uh, you know put in front of a firing squad or something. Uh, like okay, that. I, I got it. I got it. I, so we, we I, get I hadn't that. considered uh, because I know you and your work. I, I just hadn't considered that. But thank you. Yeah. Go. Um, yeah. So we get back uh, and go to this uh, undisclosed location, which has now been made public at Fort McNair. It was late. Um, the anthrax was released at the Capitol uh, because of the under ground subway system at the Capitol that goes between the, the Capitol building and all the office buildings. The anthrax was pushed around uh, all the different locations. Uh, to compound matters, and this is where the chaos comes in, uh, the house evacuated when the 
letters occurred without adjourning officially. They didn't take a vote to adjourn. Now, why is that important? That's important because the, the Constitution and the House rules say that if they don't have a quorum to uh, adjourn, they're assumed that they've been taken over by a hostile enemy. So the government of the United States would have ceased to exist if they didn't meet within 72 hours as the House with a quorum and vote to adjourn. So 72 hours, this is a fr third, Friday now, this is a Friday. Um, and we couldn't go back to the Capitol. The members didn't want to evacuate the capital city. They didn't want to leave Washington. We looked at, uh, we even looked at Greenbrier, which had already been leaked years prior as one of the uh, continuity sites for, for uh, Congress to meet. We looked at the old FBI building downtown, which wasn't safe. You know, the, the people got shot in the, the vicinity of the old FBI building. Uh, so we needed a place for Congress to meet with a quorum and in public because the meeting has to be in public, right? Uh, but we couldn't have the public there. We couldn't disclose the location. So in, in Tom Clancy fashion, we had to take a member of the public blindfolded to this off-site location uh, to where we were going to have the meeting and we also had to figure out how we we're going to broadcast it to make it public so we got c-span involved uh, and set up a live feed from this off-site location this undisclosed location it's still undisclosed uh, so no, you can't to, disclose to, to this day no they, they, they released it finally uh, it got leaked it was at, at fort mcnair where they okay I was I was going to ask if it was Mount Weather because I'd been to Mount Weather. No, they didn't uh, want to leave. They didn't want to leave DC. Okay, they to I, stay in DC. So Mount uh, Weather is uh, is in Virginia, uh, an hour maybe from Northern Virginia, like the Dulles Airport area, if memory serves. And uh, I was there for FEMA training when I was a FEMA instructor, but it was also a pretty deep underground. Uh, uh, sure. alternate alternate side of government uh Mount, and it's called it's called mount weather because some interesting weather that they get there but yeah but, but, uh, so and and there is an alternate uh site for congress in the building because i've been in it there is and then uh there are continuity sites strategically placed around the country but they, they i was get... wondering about that considering i knew the green broad group in right. west virginia had closed yeah it's a it's a it's a resort it is a resort. Um, the, the infrastructure still exists there underneath. Uh, it's, it's pretty fascinating. But uh, um, the other thing that was interesting is in order to, the House rules had, uh, that there's a mace, which is a staff with an eagle, uh, golden eagle on the top of it that sits uh, at the uh, dais. And that has to be present for there to be a meeting of the House of Representatives. The portrait of George Washington that sits behind the podium has to be present to have a meeting of the House of Representatives in this. And now those things are inside the Capitol in an anthrax contaminated area. Um, so uh, we had to get the fire department to go in in level A <laughs> to go retrieve the mace and these other things that have to be present. Uh, we had the meeting finally, and uh, they, they voted to adjourn. And uh, since then, subsequent to then, uh, several uh, former presidents, uh, former speakers of the House, a lot of smart constitutional attorneys got together over the course of the next 
year and a half or so after that incident and rewrote uh, the House rules to, to uh, ensure continuity of, of government if something like that ever happened again. Uh, you, do, you don't think about the things that are steeped in, we think they're steeped in tradition, uh, but they were written into almost law or, or in law in many cases that have to be in place in order for the government to continue. Um, for the, when the House meets, it also has this thing called an electronic voting system. It looks like a big giant bingo board. And uh, it tells the majority and minority whips where the votes lie, you know, X number of votes on this side or that side. And that also has to be available. It, the unfortunate thing is that it was built in the 1950s. It, old technology, there's only two in existence. Uh, and they're both, they were both at the time in the Capitol. When we wrote the plan, we said, uh, we made a recommendation that they relocate one of these things off campus somewhere. And they said, oh, we'll never have an incident that affects both the house and one of the office buildings. Guess what? <laughs> right. Both, both the house and the office of course. building got infected. So uh, what came out of that incident, lessons learned, the, the, new, the new visitor center, the underground visitor center at the Capitol was built uh, to uh, screen uh, individuals before they come into the Capitol building uh, to put a safe perimeter around the Capitol. Uh, the continuity plans were beefed up again. Members uh, themselves and their staff participated in, in training and exercises, not just the, uh, you know, the administrative staff of the House or the, the Senate or the clerk's office. It, members actually participated in, in those training and exercises uh, to get a better appreciation for what their role was during an emergency. Um, a lot of things also came out of that uh, in terms of uh, innovation to decon the Capitol and those uh, office buildings and the and the basically pneumatic tubes. Uh, there's little subways that go underground. We borrowed something that I had used probably 15 years earlier. Uh, my uncle worked for a pest control company, and I was always a tinkerer. And they they had a uh, termite tent, the University of Tampa, which is this beautiful uh, turn of the century building with these Russian spires and ornate structures, a lot of crevices and cracks, huge facility. and uh, I had built a heat exchange and used electric fans with remote control switches that we wired to push the superheated chemical in every corner of the, the uh, university. We used the same technology 15 years later at the Capitol with a lot more innovation and, and newer technology to eradicate the anthrax spores. So it was a, uh, that was kind of uh, a cool throw to my past. Um, I ended up being the deputy incident commander on the incident and the acting first emergency manager uh, for the uh, House of Representatives. Uh, eventually, now they have uh, both the House and Senate has 15 or so staff dedicated to emergency management. That is that's quite a story. Uh, I I knew uh, of the incident, of course, and uh, pretty much only what was, um, you know, made aware 
in the news. I also consulted for the Capitol Police. Um, I'm trying to think of the timeline. I think it may have been actually after the anthrax attacks. They were developing an internal CBRNE uh, sort of SWAT capability. Right. And uh, we, they had brought in the Secret Service, and we, uh, I was uh, with a small consulting team, and we were working with them on uh, meters, detection, PPE, and stuff like that. And uh, earlier, when I was still with New York City OEM, because of the work we were doing in New York City, we were, I say the word loosely, consulted, but we were brought in to Jerry Hauer, uh, who uh, I brought me in with him. To uh, do, you know, advise on on some of the, on some of the, you know, capabilities, but it was nothing to the extent of what you had built up, and that's uh, that's really quite a story. Um, it, it it it's interesting because when the Cold War ended, a lot of the intelligence within the legislative branch went away because they needed they didn't need. All the spy, you know, the spies and the intelligence agencies working directly in the in the capital because the posture uh, had greatly, you know, relaxed. Um, so when the anthrax attack happened, they reached back into the wayback machine and brought some of these former intelligence analysts back to the capital. And one of them literally was uh, like 87 years old, dragging an oxygen tank, looked like the guy, smoking man from the X-Files. <laughs> and uh, uh, these three guys uh, never knew their names initially, eventually came to know their names. These are some of the things I can't tell you, but uh, uh, I, I referred to them as the space cowboys and even left some prune juice on one of their desks <laughs> in the morning. But I was threatened. I was brought down to the bellows of the Capitol and to the what they call the dungeon, which is literally where the uh, the committee rooms are, are the old stables when the Capitol was built and the congressmen and senators rode their horses to the Capitol and, and the those meeting rooms were stables underneath. So I was brought into the catacombs in this dark, dusty room and I was threatened uh, with an inch of my life because I didn't have uh, TS compartmentalized security at the time, I just had TS and uh, they, they kind of waved their magic wand and granted me uh, this clearance, uh, but I was threatened by this 90 year old man in the basement of the Capitol, but I took it seriously too. Yeah, I, I, believed, I, bet you did. <laughs> I believed him. So a couple of observations, the original plan that you wrote, and yes. then I want to talk about crisis management. Um, did it, ha did it not have uh well no I'll, let me ask the question a different way what was the were there alternate sites listed in that plan um but they just didn't want to leave the dc so you ad hoc uh, a decision was made to go to mcnair yes uh that, that 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 contingency was in there also when i got there Chaz and i got there to that site and looked around the people responsible in the sergeant at arms office and the chief administrative officer's office uh, were sitting on the floor in the gymnasium with our plan torn apart into the playbooks and making assignments based on the way we designed the plan to be written. So uh, going back to whether I was going to be uh, 
you know, hung for treason for writing a bad plan or not. They were, <laughs> it wasn't, they were using it uh, uh, appropriately and it uh, actually saved our bacon. We came up with a lot of contingencies. Uh, for example, uh, they had to make payroll for all the, you know, there's five, over 5,000 people supporting Congress um, from the architect's office to the clerk's office. Uh, that aren't members of Congress or their staff. These are the administration of the, the Capitol, the lawyers, the, uh, and to support that many people uh, is a big payroll and uh, didn't have access to their computers. We had, uh, as part of the training, talked about uh, ways of doing continuity for, there's predating cloud technology, but there was a remote, uh, system running on one person's computer in the Capitol that they were able to tunnel through to get to the, the uh, payroll software and push payroll out that week. So they didn't miss uh, a paycheck, believe it or not, even though they, uh, they had to leave the Capitol and all their computers behind. I, I get, I, I get that. I consulted uh, at one point uh, for the New York state uh, office of the comptroller and they had uh, five mission, mission critical functions at, at the hierarchy. And one of them was state payroll, as you would you know, imagine. The other one was state pensions. And one was uh, procurement. And there were two others I'd have to think about. But um, we exercised payroll. We actually did a tabletop or I may may probably even can call this a functional exercise because mm -hmm. we had um, participants, exercise participants at an, at, at an alternate location where alternate check cutting uh, machinery. Right. Manual stuff. Well, yeah. Uh, this you is know, about 15 years ago, but they, they, they had it. I mean, they had it going. Uh, the exercise was successful, but it was, it was uh, just uh, another experience I had. Well, it, it, lesson learned from the trade center from the anthrax attack at the capitol from andrew uh even in andrew the police officers and firefighters in hialeah florida homestead florida didn't show up to work the next day after the storm had passed and everyone was perplexed you know where where, where was our responders they were victims also of the incident so they were busy taking care of their families because their homes were damaged when the city manager of Hialeah found out, he sent their public works crews to their houses with tarps, with plywood, shored up their homes. They had almost a 98% return to work rate the next day. If you take care of your employees, they'll be there to take care of you. But they, you have to remember that uh, the, it's a big lesson to learn for a lot of people is that we're impacted by the same emergency that the people we serve are impacted by. And we have to have our own plans in order. You know, we, I, you and I have both uh, lectured around the country, Steve, and uh, I, I think we've both asked the same question to emergency managers. How many of you have a family disaster plan and disaster supply kit? And it's surprising more and more are now, but, but back in the old days, you know, more than, 75% of the people in the room didn't raise their hand uh, because they, they, they're they so focused on their job and their mission. But you got to 
take care of your family first, and then you can take care of uh, your neighborhood, and then you can take care of the community, then you can take care of you know the state, uh, whatever you know. You have to. It's a kind of my, Maslow's hierarchy of needs in reverse. <laughs> you got to absolutely, to, yeah. yeah. I, absolutely. I um I live on on the coast in southeast Florida. Uh, I've always lived in a hazard area. Um, most recently, I did an eight-year run in Colorado, where our biggest threats, or risks, if you will, in the city I served was uh, wildfire, as you could imagine, for being Colorado. Extremes of winter weather right. um, and um, off-season windstorms. We had uh, uh, one significant wind event. Uh, that took out about, uh, I want to say, 50,000 customers at peak. So, you know, you have that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, so wherever I've been, I've had to think about that that preparedness. And Colorado being Colorado, some of the people I work with, some of the people on my staff were actually, I'll say, prepper light. You know, no, <laughs> nobody right. was, uh, you, you, know, uh, you know, 10 feet underground in a bunker, but... There were people that had a better understanding, uh, military people that had a better understanding of what Certainly. it was to well, be, be self Just like in New York. I'll go back to New York again. Yeah. Folks in New York City, not so resilient, but people in upstate New York, in, in the farmland of New York, and you know, they are more resilient. It, it depends on your exposure. And we, in Florida, which you've come to realize, we've got so many people moving here uh, from up north. They have no experience or from other parts of the country, no experience with hurricanes whatsoever. And their first exposure is the first hurricane that they, they're in the middle of. And it's too late sometimes for those individuals. Uh, it's a hard lesson to learn for them. And, and we, we just need to, uh, the adage of, you know, be aware, be safe, have a plan, have a kit. You, you need to follow that. So be aware of your surroundings. If you move to a hazard prone area, learn about those hazards and, and the potential loss of your resources or your medical supplies or your healthcare providers. Uh, you know, build a plan around that. You know, plan to leave. Don't don't wait to the last minute. Oh, I'll get out at the last minute. Last minute's too late, as the people in uh, you know in Naples and Fort Myers and. Sanibel and Captiva and uh, those that were impacted by Ian found out. That's an incredibly powerful and important message. My observation and my fears are that Americans are really bad at self-safety, self-protection. Uh, there's a dial 911 and a big red truck comes kind of right. mentality. <laughs> not not, not, not right. everywhere, of course. There's, my experience in Florida now that I've been here a couple of years is also, uh, you know, I'm involved with businesses and chambers of commerce and stuff like that. There's um, uh, an unhealthy arrogance mm -hmm. about hurricanes. We're Floridians. We got that. Well... Not so much. And I think your your message is, is a good one. And even organizations that have plans in place need to exercise them, revisit them annually. And uh, just look at your workforce. With today's work from home distributed workforce, what used to be maybe 30 employees in an office building, whatever you, the number is, are now 30 employees in 30 different locations around the region. That's 30 new sites where risk exists. And that and that could impact your business if 
you have a critical employee that's out of power or unable to get out to the store and get food because of uh well i'm thinking colorado not florida yeah, sorry, but 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 snow or something happens like that. Yeah. There. so so yeah. conversely though it it distributes the risk a little bit so that you have a little bit of redundancy you know bob lives in this zone versus mary living in that zone excellent point but and ian when you have that much water pushing in it's not just the bay it's the, you know the inland waters that people don't think about and that's where most of the lives are lost in in hurricanes is not from the storm surge it's from the inland flooding uh rivers creeks streams lakes uh, overflowing their banks uh, on top of storm surge and cutting off roadways you know like we saw in, in uh in northport or in uh, sanibel where the entire causeway was was uh, wiped out the only way on and right. off for Sanibel and Captiva is through that one causeway. So uh, if you if your house is secure, it's up on stilts, it's hurt, you know, cat four proof, it, you still it could perish from the rising waters, from lack of uh, food or water and emergency services. Because in Florida, uh, most communities take the stance that once it's in uh, have a an employee of mine that just that was in New Jersey for most of his career as a paramedic, they worked in the middle of the storm. Uh, with, this, with, the, with the storm coming overhead, they were still running calls. In Florida, we've learned that we're going to pull our emergency workers off the road when we get 35 mile an hour winds or 40 mile an hour winds to and pull the apparatus back to high and dry land uh, so that we could can respond afterwards. If we don't, all those responders could be in peril and as well as the equipment to come in and rescue you so when we say leave uh, we're not going to be here we mean it uh, in daytona beach shores uh, we're one mile wide at our widest and nine miles long but mostly vertical high-rise condos and things of that nature um, i realized i had a problem very small residential population but up to a million people surge of tourist population because it's the it's the coastal part of Daytona Beach. Race week, bike week, all the spring so breakers. This is where the uh, the you're allowed to take your auto on the on the beach. Yes, yes, and um, the, they're trying to evacuate that many people with uh, one or two, three causeways over uh, takes a long time. So we start early. We also uh, did something unique with our CERT team. We created a community-wide CERT team rather than neighborhood CERT teams. And with those neighborhood CERT teams, each condo to have their business license to operate as a condominium association, or association license, and each business to operate as a business, uh, hotel, moteliers, had to supply one person to be on the community CERT team. And we train them in first aid, CPR, minor fire suppression, uh, evacuation techniques. So when I had to evacuate the city uh, once, uh, we were able to effectively evacuate pretty much 90% of the population in four hours. This was a hurricane, I assume? Hurricane. Yeah. And you, that's uh, in four hours, Steve. It, it, it's because 
Martha in in the you know one two three four uh, C Drive knew everybody in that building. It was like Harper Valley PTA. Oh, Mar Martha's go going to visit her grandkids in in uh, New York. She's not here. This person's uh, you know, on vacation. They knew who was in the building, who wasn't in the building, but the the they so they created like another little mini sort team within their buildings, and they were able to do those evacuations very rapidly. For the people that remained, uh, we weren't the provider of our water. We we got our water from our neighboring uh, municipality. We asked them to shut the water off to the city. Uh, and we told the population that we're shutting the water off to uh, keep the water supply safe so that when you come back and turn the water on, uh, you have potable water. Uh, so you can use some techniques like that. It, it sounds harsh, but the the alternative is to have a high uh, deceased count, uh, and we don't want to have that. So um, I'm looking at some notes here, and I, I have a number of great takeaways. And the, the, I want to start by saying, which I applaud, and uh, I say that to you both as a friend and a, and a colleague, because um, when it hits the fan, you and I are pretty much on the phone, uh, especially now that I'm, I'm here in Florida. Yes. What you have used across these incidents, these complex incidents is not necessarily a doctrinal approach you used an imaginative and innovative approach to accomplish or overcome adversity to meet the challenges of the crisis and and that's one of the messages of five minutes to chaos because um i have been in situations uh i have been in jurisdictions where you spend the first hour talking about ICS structure. I have no problem with ICS. If that's one of the things you're putting in place, I assume that you had an ICS, you were the deputy incident commander at the US Capitol, I assume there was yes. an ICS structure. But yes. we didn't have to talk about that because 53 no. years after the creation of ICS, I don't want to talk about the create how how you how you organized your response i want to talk about the creative way the imaginative way that you overcame those challenges well, you didn't have a mace no. the go u.s government was about to shut down because you didn't have a mace you figured it out <laughs> yeah well it the thing that i've learned over the years steve is we are we the emergency management public safety community is minuscule compared to the uh, responsibility and the number of people we have to take care of. So I've, I've always had to find- I love that. Force multipliers. Yeah. Uh, whether it was technolo good technology, not just buying technology for technology's sake, whether it was public-private partnerships, whether it was taking the concept of ICS, flipping it on its head and using similar constructs in the EOC or even borrowing from wildland fire response and, and creating mission packages. That's the key. You, that's the key. Taking something that's designed as a malleable, nimble, um, highly reliable organization. That, that's a, that's an academic term. I, uh, I use that in, uh, in, in my thesis when I was studying complex crises. Uh, 
and and applying it and taking the best attributes of ICS and applying it to the crisis while not breaching the the spirit of the structure. Love that, Adam. Yeah, and I, I learned a lot of that from you too, Steve. I mean, there was a lot of what you did in New York. Uh, you look at Florida and New York and Texas and California with the wildfires as the kind of the uh, the grandfathers or the godfathers of a lot of the innovations that we see in the profession today. Um, the you know the forward command post that you came up with in New York City, the to, to the, the liaisons from other agencies. You, you, I borrowed that construct from you to build at the Port Authority when I came on board. There was four staff, and there were three of them were borrowed from I other remember. departments. Yep, yep, yep. And and uh, I had con I had a couple of consultants, you, Bill Vorlachek, a couple other folks that that helped us, uh, but we really needed you know, 40 or 50 people to manage the it's billions and billions and billions of dollars of critical infrastructure. It, it's it's the teleport, the which is a telecommunications node that manages the entire Northeast United States. It's Staten it's Island, the, right? Staten Island. It's the heliport for landing helicopters at the right. uh, UN building. It, it, there's so many pieces of infrastructure that rely on uh, us to be uh, on our game 100%, well, 110%, uh, because we always have to, be, as you are aware, uh, working in New York City and also with me at the Port Authority, the amount of potential attacks uh, that we thwart every day, uh, people surveilling bridges, people looking at cyber attacks, people uh, looking to, to you know, carry out another 9-11, it, it happens more often than most people would like to believe you know you have to be right 100 percent. they only have to be right once i i know that to be true because at one point uh i uh i was also over physical security uh in colorado at the utility and i i uh, i have uh ts and fbi ts and i was uh, i interacted with the bureau on on some threats that we had against our electric and water infrastructure and uh, we actually had an FBI agent signed as a liaison to us. So we had the, I mean, he didn't work full time with us, but he, you know, he was our point of contact right. and he was right there in town at the, uh, at the JTTF. And uh, so, you, so you're right. Uh, the, the threats are, is current, it's a threat stream. And, and, that, and that's not just a word, but there is, there's a lot going on and the integration of security and crisis management, emergency management, there has to be that crossover. There has to be that nexus because it comes to a point where, and on the cyber side as well, the most robust physical security systems, barriers, be they electric or physical may fail. And then you go into crisis mode. And that, that that's another takeaway. You're uh your analogy or your, your your example is spot on government starting to figure that out finally we're, we're merging you know it disaster recovery is no longer a standalone island plan it's a part of our eops private sector it, it's harder for them to make that transition they're starting to um, at the corporate crisis management team level you know a lot of companies if they're not publicly traded don't never had the need or never saw the need for that uh, construct. They, they get together as a committee and solve problems, but that delays the response. And you know, a lot of businesses go out because they don't have that plan. They may have really robust 
IT uh, and, and information security plans, but that's only one little piece of the enterprise management. Who's running the enterprise or who's coordinating for the enterprise? The reputation hits, the uh, uh, regulation hits that you might get, the lawsuits that you might uh, face if you don't have something in place. So just like we, in the early days when we were trying to convince mayors and, and elected officials and city management, county management, to invest in the insurance policy of emergency management, uh, we need to do the same thing at the corporate level and engage those corporate partners in government. And, and in, conversely, in the private sector, we need to engage government in what we're doing, large uh, campus environment, large warehouse, invite your public safety partners to walk the place, buy them lunch, get to know your staff, look at where all the, the hidden corridors in the malls are uh, so that when we do have a response, we're not scratching our heads trying to find uh, critical information uh, you know, in the, in the heat of battle. Yeah. So in episode six, Anne-Marie McLaughlin, she's the emergency management director at New York University. She this episode dropped yesterday. She talks about muffin and coffee diplomacy. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm giving it a term of what she described. Love it. Uh, right. Pre uh, pre uh, she's from Boston, pre marathon bombing uh, a senior executive from one of the property management groups in the city had brought probably 100 or so people together. I'm trying to think of the number. Uh, for a non-HC, if you will, tabletop and, you know, talk about scenarios and stuff. And uh, she said it was the muffin and coffee it was, that, that, brought him to, that brought him to the table. Yeah, break uh, bread. And that's it. Right, exactly. <laughs> and and, and I, I love what you're saying. So um, as we start to wrap up, uh, that was ex that was a really exciting episode, Adam. Um, I had... Um, uh, every reason to believe that you were going to come in with great stories and uh because because i knew your background i had forgotten it's quite a while now the details of your uh exposure no pun intended to the uh to the anthrax uh, situation in dc uh, as well as florida so a couple of takeaways um and this is for any organization i took this away from any of the roles that you've had is well know your risk and have intelligence and that that is a really basic component of crisis management, emergency management, security. Uh, know your risks and know your intel. You want to do an all hazards plan uh, and risk agnostic emergency plan. I think that's fine, but you need to have annexes that go deep into the development of uh, strategies and tactics for a specific risk. An anthrax attack uh, is a specific risk, right. or the loss of the legislative physical infrastructure is huge and is. uh and 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 not and then the the body not wanting to go to the designated alternate site that's okay but you have to you have to well, be in a, a creative let's not write plans that just check a box let and or write a plan that is so broad that there's no specific instructions on how to you know if i don't know how to land an airplane i want a checklist on how to land this airplane um and that's hard. Yeah, it is. That's hard to do to get that level of detail, but, but it's important. Know you're, know you're going to know your risks. What are we writing this plan to do? Start with that. Most people just start writing a plan, then write the executive summary at the end. Write the executive summary at the beginning with your goals and objectives. What yeah. is the purpose of this plan? And then back into the details. 
to make yeah. sure that you've, uh, you know, no plan withstands confrontation with the enemy, whether it's a terrorist, whether it's a hurricane, whether it's a, a you know, a winter storm or anthrax. But having the details enough that you can, as we talked about other things, repurpose. You know, if I have to do an evacuation and open shelters for a tornado or a multi-family apartment fire, it's still opening shelters. I just need to open maybe more of them. I need more personnel to staff it. But the, the function of opening a shelter and the things I need for a shelter don't change. So you can recycle those things. Uh, evacuation. You can evacuate for a, a, you know, a hazmat inside a building. You can evacuate for a fire. Number. It's still evacuation. So you don't have to repeat the, that information in every single plan. If you use little playbooks, here's the evacuation piece. Here's the um, uh, the, evac the uh, feeding piece. Put it together ad hoc from all those pieces and, and almost like a tear and go. Um, your planning uh, would be so much easier. You're absolutely correct. I remember when we were in, in New York City OEM, one of the state universities that monitored earthquakes, I want to say the Lamont Dougherty Laboratory, I'm not, may not be getting that right. They were kind of honest for not having an earthquake plan. And uh, our director at the time was very adroit at telling them, yeah, but I, we have a hurricane plan. Well, what does hurricane plan do? It does exactly what you said. It does everything <laughs> that we need to do for pretty much any natural hazard right. because we can move the people, shelter the people, feed the people, care for their medical needs, uh, et cetera. So your, your point about having a risk agnostic appendices, if you will, or what did you call them? Playbooks. I love Playbooks. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. Well, well, I know we're in short, Steve, but one point I really want to make is especially in government we we try to write these eops in an esf or emergency support function construct right that doesn't work for any local government maybe even chicago or new york i mean the as the exception uh, there's not enough people to fully staff three shifts in an eoc 12 to 15 esfs and what we're really trying to plan for is consequences. So make your plans consequence-based or in your ice and your org structure consequence-based. So maybe even use the community lifelines to organize your, uh, uh, you know, your operation kind of a hybrid ICS model. So under ops, put your community lifelines for. Uh, I learned about that at the governor's hurricane conference. It's one of the cities on the West coast of Florida, um, I'm not looking at at the information in front of me right now. They did a presentation on, on mm -hmm. lifeline structure for their EOC. It was a fire department based emergency management. Uh, but I like that. And the other thing that people are doing now are merging for operational purposes like ESFs mm -hmm. uh, and bringing them into uh, groups or bundles or branches. You know, at the original EOC that we had at Seven World Trade Center, we mm -hmm. we, we we did that. If you remember that, oh, you yeah. remember that building. Uh, there were, I think, ten what we called pods, and each of those pods were assigned to 
you know, human um, services, not necessarily yeah. an ESF, but a, a function. So there was a law enforcement pod and there were like 10 seats for state police, city police, housing police, transit police, wh whatever the Port Authority police. And then there was health and medical and there was, you know, the New York Hospital Association and HHC and and public health and, and, and stuff like that. So. Uh, yeah, you can't you can't possibly accomplish it in, in the way you're doing it, and you no. have to create those those mini teams uh, and promote teamwork so everybody achieves that the, the common objective and supports each other. Well, and, and we have to also remember we're with very few exceptions we're not leading the incident; we are coordinating the resources to support the incident. Recording information to support the fire chief, to support the police chief, to support this commander, to support that. And you don't need that commander sitting in your EOC as long as you have a liaison that's communicating with that person in the field. Let the tactics play out with the strongest people in the field. Absolutely. Don't try to pull them all back into the command center. You know, hurricane's a little different because you can't go anywhere. Uh, but we, what we've also seen because of COVID is we can and people are successfully doing remote uh, emergency operations centers it, what, with some contingency of staff at the physical ESC. What it's doing is, is getting us up to speed faster because you don't have to drive an hour to get to the ESC to start contributing. I'm, I'm in a Teams meeting. I'm in a, a web ESC uh, group, whatever it is, we're already starting to respond from you know, our living rooms from Starbucks, from the car. Uh, so we're not waiting for things to happen. Yeah, I like that. Absolutely. The, the sooner we lean it forward and the sooner we're able to establish uh, that cross communication with, with, with the different players, the, the better we are. One more point I wanted to make, because I think it's sometimes lost. I'm seeing less of it now. But um, emergency management, business continuity, crisis management, we are all the same. And the plans that you develop must include, if you're developing an emergency operations plan, uh, one of the playbooks should include alternate sites, alternate processes, manual functions for those mm -hmm. uh, where technology fails. Um, emergency management can no longer just... Uh, rely on the critical infrastructure agencies and say they have this because in a significant power outage, the utility, um, the utility's job is restoration of power. Right. The utility's job is not really to take care of the public. That's really the emergency management function. The utility can support that. Um, so emergency management needs to have that capability as as continuity of well for itself continuity of government and continuity of operations and then integrate businesses you know having a BIOC, a business eoc yes. or 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 a business branch in your eoc uh especially in a situation where um your community is served by by big box stores you know there's the waffle house index that that we talk about yes. pretty often i think that applies even more so to larger businesses Target, Walmart, Costco, uh, Publix, the big, the big, because if those businesses are resilient and they're integrated into the emergency management infrastructure, the community is taking care of itself. Oh, yeah. Well, where are we getting our resources from, Steve? It's not from the uh, public safety shop down the street. Private sector owns most of the resources in this country. Right. 
So uh, you, ha you have to have those relationships and, and they wanna help. They, they wanna know what they can do to help. One, it's good for, for image, but two, people are generally uh, caring and want to help their communities. They, the, the thing I said earlier about we're victims too, they're victims as well. They want to help their community recover. They, they have relationships. Martha comes in every Tuesday and she knows every checkout clerk in Publix. Um, and that's her time to, to socialize. Right. Um, so they, they are critical to recovery. Uh, getting, getting those, you know, we, we, we've in the past not funded, for example, generators at gas stations or, um, you know, power to banks. But it, without that, that's the lifeblood of recovery. If we can get that grocery store back open, we don't have to take care of them as government. That's it. That's the point. <laughs> that's the point. If if, yeah. if we can, if the community feeds itself, yeah. then the U.S. Department of Agriculture doesn't have to activate its its its, its emergency food su you know, supply program. And take a week uh, to get here. And 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 take a week to get there. Yeah. So. Um, Thank you, Adam. That was really an an, an incredible hour. Um, great stories, great tech uh, techniques and tactics. Um, final thoughts for the for the folks. Just be safe, have a plan, and that, that was kind of my mantra in the, in the colony: is have a plan. Uh, you, you, it, we'll talk about the colony in another episode. But <laughs> um, again, practice those plans test those plans, beat the crap out of those plans in an exercise so that you're not standing there like we were collectively, globally during Antrac, uh, during uh, COVID without uh, our plans considering the worst case. If you think of the worst case and make it worse, you know, we, we laugh at the uh, zombie apocalypse exercises that the CDC used to do, but those are actually worst case you know it, it may not be a zombie it may be something else uh but it is we have to push those plans to their limits in the safe environment of the exercise fix them don't look at it as a fault that the plan didn't work don't don't uh, you know it, it's not usually personalities that make plans fail it's the planning itself we didn't do enough to pressure test them that's the word i was just going to use perfect and we're we're on the same page there. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. Uh, any uh, any way the folks could get in touch with you? Sure, uh, I'll put your contact LinkedIn in profile. Show notes. Sure, LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn disaster guy. Okay, that's a good one. I want to thank Adam Montella for joining Five Minutes to Chaos and for sharing his career experience and uh, crisis management stories. And I appreciate you bringing uh, multiple stories and being able to really tie a bow or put a frame around how you responded to each one of those. I th the information here was really broad and very in informative. Thank you for that. Five Minutes Thank to you, Chaos too. drops weekly on Thursdays. Please follow us or like us on your favorite platform and set it to alert when an episode drops. I welcome your comments or questions, which can be submitted in the comments area uh, of the show on your platform, or you can contact me, uh, direct message me on LinkedIn. And until next time, embrace the chaos. That's good. That brings us to the end of this episode of Five Minutes to Chaos. 
We hope you enjoyed exploring the many facets of the incident we discussed today and gained some new insights and perspectives along the way. Remember, confronting chaos is not something to be feared or avoided. It is a central crisis management role that we can learn to embrace and navigate with robust leadership and personal resilience. By embracing chaos, we can tap into our creative potential, adapt to situations more easily, and find a way to overcome the challenges of complex emergencies. I'd like to thank our guests and experts who shared their insights with us today, and to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you found value in today's episode and invite you to continue exploring the many aspects of complex crisis management. Don't forget to subscribe to 5 Minutes to Chaos for more thought-provoking conversations and insights. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review or sharing it with a friend and colleague. Until next time, embrace the chaos. Thank you.